Uh, so, of course, though, our kids weren't accidents. We uh, planned them. They, uh, they, they came according to uh, what we wanted, not necessarily when we thought they were going to come, but, but we sure hoped they would come, and so that was a real blessing to us. They were intentional. So, uh, you young people, everything in its proper order. We get engaged, we get married, then we have kids and everything as it should be. That's God's plan. Uh, and I'm sure that that's how Joseph had his life planned as well, right? Engagement marriage, and then kids. And he had already done the engagement part with uh, Mary, and the next thing that was going to happen was they were going to get married, uh, and then they were going to have kids. And uh, Joseph, though, was about to have the biggest surprise of his life, and it wasn't going to be the good kind of surprise that he was wanting. Uh, imagine what it was like for him uh, to hear that his young fiance was pregnant. I imagine that it wasn't like a horror movie jump scare uh, kind of uh, surprise, that kind of shock, but I imagine that until the angel came and told him uh, what had actually happened, that he had nightmares like you'd have after a horror movie thinking about uh, what had happened with uh, his young fiance. And so we're going to bounce back and forth between Matthew and Luke today because I want to go through Joseph's life in chronological order and we're just going to see uh, how God worked in Joseph's life and we're going to see the qualities that God wanted in Jesus' earthly father and how Joseph modeled those qualities. And we want to see that the qualities that were present in Joseph, just like we saw in Zacharias and Elizabeth, are the same qualities that ought to be present in us uh, as disciples of Christ. Uh, you and me should, ex should uh, exhibit these very same qualities. And the first thing we learn about Joseph is that when he was faced with a difficult decision, Joseph trusted God's wisdom more than his own. So we look at Matthew uh, starting off here, verses uh, 18 to 21 of chapter 1. This is how... The birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the Lord and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. So before we talk about the passage, let's understand first that there were three steps in a Jewish marriage. We have to understand this to, to get the uh, process here. Uh, first, there was the agreement, the arrangement of the marriage between the, the two who were going to be married and their parents. The families were very much involved in this, so they would agree to the marriage. And then there would be this public announcement, uh, which was another way of saying a betrothal. The two were betrothed to each other. Now, betrothal is like an engagement that we would have these days, except it was far more legally binding than our engagements are. Uh, it was actually a legal arrangement where they were married for all intents and purposes, except that they didn't live together uh, as a married couple would, uh, but they were legally bound to each other. And so <clears throat> if you were going to be betrothed uh, and you were under this legal arrangement, the only way to undo that legal arrangement was by a legal divorce or by the death of one of the two parties. And so you have this announcement and betrothal. And then after that period of time, which normally lasted about one year, uh, and if everything was still uh, good, uh, she was still pure after the year, if the arrangements were still on, then they would actually go through with the wedding at that point. Uh, and then after the wedding, they continued to live as a married couple would live. Well, 
Uh, Joseph and Mary were betrothed, uh, and so that's a legal binding arrangement, and that was hard to get out of at that point. And Mary's apparent unfaithfulness uh, caused a severe social stigma. Now, it would be one thing to find out that the child was Joseph's. Now, they were betrothed. They should not be uh, having relations together, but they were betrothed, and so at least that's it's bad, but it's not quite so bad as it being somebody who was not even party to the betrothal. That makes it really bad, and so uh, that would be a terrible, terrible social faux pas and against the law of Moses. And so, according to Jewish civil law, uh, Joseph had the right to a, a public divorce, a big hearing where she would have been publicly vilified, and the Jewish authorities could have had her stoned under uh, Moses' law. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. So Joseph had a couple of options, as we see. He had a hard decision to make, and so he had these two options. As a faithful Jew uh, to the law, he could have divorced her publicly. He could have made a big scene about that public divorce, and uh, he could have had his rights restored, and he could have had whatever shame that he was experiencing uh, kind of vindicated publicly. He could have done that, and that might have resulted in her being stoned to death. The other option would be to divorce her quietly with a lot, without a lot of fanfare, uh, and so, so that way she would not be uh, exposed to this public disgrace and perhaps even death. Now, I said that this is a legal arrangement, so it has to be undone legally as well, and it's hard to imagine how that could be done quietly. This would be a public scandal, right? Uh, the best explanation I found for how this would work would be kind of like uh, if you were in a lawsuit and you agreed to kind of an out-of-court settlement uh, with the family. So you wouldn't go to court, have your day in, in court or whatever. You and the family would kind of meet on the side and uh, work it out. Maybe a little money was exchanged, uh, you know, whatever might have happened in that day. But they, there wouldn't be this big public uh, scandal. They would, they would kind of sweep that under the court, under the rug, so that there wouldn't be this big court date. Uh, so... That's probably what it means, that he intended to send her away quietly or, or to, to divorce her quietly. Now, what's interesting to me in, in this entire situation is that uh, the Holy Spirit never revealed to Joseph what the plan was going to be in advance, right? He told Zacharias what the plan was going to be in advance, but he didn't tell Joseph what the plan was going to be in advance. And I wonder why that is so. Uh, Joseph would have had a whole lot easier time of going along with it uh, and, and trying to make this decision for himself if he had known uh, what the Holy Spirit and what God had in mind. So I think probably uh, God was maybe testing Joseph or, or building up his character because for the life that God had planned for Joseph, he was going to need a lot of character. He was not going to have an easy life. Uh, and so of the two choices that Joseph had, uh, before hearing from the Lord in a dream, remember, he has not heard from the Lord in a dream yet. He's got these two choices to make. And at the cost of his own honor, right, this was a humiliating, shameful thing to, for him to think that his fiancée was out being unfaithful to him. That's, that's very embarrassing, a, a great public stigma. Uh, so at the cost of his honor, uh, he decided to or privately divorce her when he could have tried to receive revenge for this perceived transgression. And I think that that says a lot about Joseph's character uh, that God was developing in him. So those were the two options that Joseph thought that he had. But then God presented to him a third option. God then sent the angel to him in a dream that said, you could do this third thing, Joseph, that maybe you haven't thought of. You could actually go through with the wedding. Now, the angel may have been Gabriel. Uh, we're not told. Gabriel's the one who appeared to the other people in the story uh, of the birth narrative, so we might assume that it is Gabriel, but we're not actually told that. 
but his message was crystal clear. Uh, Mary was not unfaithful. In fact, the child had been conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if Mary gave Joseph that bit of news, can you imagine what Joseph's reaction would have been? I would have been, uh-huh, yeah, that's a good one, Mary. That's a, I've never heard that one before. Uh, so that's probably, his, his jaw would have dropped and said, come on, you can't expect me to believe that, right? Well, that's probably true. I don't know how Mary could possibly have explained this to Joseph. And so that's why the Holy Spirit uh, sends the angel to speak to Joseph and tells him what the truth is. And that's a very extraordinary way uh, to get the message uh, to Joseph in a message or in a birth narrative that's filled with extraordinary messages and extraordinary messengers. Notice that uh, the angel doesn't tell Joseph how exactly this conception happened. Uh, we're, we're left to just imagine. We have no idea uh, how it happened through the Holy Spirit. But what he did say was, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And when you do, when you bring him into your house, uh, you will call this child by the name of Jesus. Now, the Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua, which means literally the Lord saves. And so that was going to be this child's name. And uh, Joseph could not have understood the full meaning of, of any of this at, the point, at this point in time. But it's interesting because we do, because now uh, on this side of the cross, it's all been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, uh, through the New Testament. So how could Jesus save the people from their sins? Well, the first thing is that Jesus was conceived supernaturally. And so we know there are uh, therefore, that he is God. Only God could be conceived supernaturally like this. But because he's born of a woman, he's also human. So he is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. Well, why is that important? Why is it necessary that he be both? Well, only a being equal to God could satisfy God's wrath against sin. And that's who Jesus was. Only this being who's equal can satisfy his wrath. And so as God, he is able to satisfy the wrath of God. And as God, he's able to live the sinless, perfect life that is required in order to be our substitute on a cross. And so he has to be God. But he also has to be man because he has to be tempted in all ways just like we are and yet to be without sin in order to be that perfect sacrifice. And so these two things, that he's 100% God, 100% man, qualify him to be our substitute, to die on a cross so that we who believe in him for our salvation don't have to suffer God's wrath for our sins. Jesus has already paid the price for our sins. And so all we have to do now on this side of the cross, after the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection, and the uh, authors of the New Testament explaining these things to us, all we need to do is to believe in him as our savior, not to have to suffer the wrath of God. And that's what it means for Jesus, that he will save his people from their sins. He's already done this work, and all that's left for us to do is believe. But for Joseph, none of that had been revealed to him yet, right? Jesus had just been born. He's not been uh, crucified, buried, uh, and risen from the dead. The New Testament hasn't been written at this point. So Joseph is pretty much in the dark in terms of uh, what he might know. He only knows what he could possibly understand from uh, what was revealed in the Old Testament and what the angel Gabriel, or whoever the angel was, might have revealed to him. But it's interesting 
that Joseph didn't ask questions. Uh, he didn't have all the answers, and he knew he didn't have all the answers, but he never asked any questions. He just obeyed. And so let's see what he did. Verses 24 and 25. Uh, he, when, the, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until, he, until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph takes Mary home to be his wife, which means that he agreed to be a partaker uh, in the ridicule, in the shame, uh, the embarrassment that was going to be present as the whispers uh, about this couple happened. He would bear Mary's burden too. And realize that we don't know exactly when this information was given by the angel to Joseph. It might have, it might have been before Mary went on that three-month visit to Elizabeth, or sometime during the time that Mary was with Elizabeth, or it might have been after, right, after she came back. We're, we're not told when it is. Uh, all we know is that Joseph's thinking changed because he trusted God's wisdom more than his own wisdom. And where he was once ready to divorce her, now his thoughts changed from divorce to, I need to protect and nurture and care for this new family uh, that God has given to me. And so God spoke to him, uh, and God speaks to us too. Are we aware of it? Are we aware of his presence? God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us when we pray, and he reveals his will for our lives. And when God speaks to us, are we attuned? Are we listening and obeying like Joseph was? Are we trusting his wisdom more than our own wisdom? Uh, that's the model. That's the example that Joseph set for us. So he trusted God's wisdom more than his own. Now, the second thing we learn about Joseph is that when he took Mary into his house, Joseph became the spiritual leader of the home. And we see this in his obedience to various institutions. And the first one is the law of Rome. And we can read about this in now hopping over to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to register. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in a cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we've already learned that Joseph was a descendant of David and Mary was as well. And then at this specific moment in history uh, revealed in these details by Luke when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and a census was taken, at this specific moment in history, uh, God chose to fulfill the long-awaited prophecies that the Messiah would be born. Uh, God fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 11 that said that the, this child would be a descendant of, uh, of David. Uh, and that's what Joseph and Mary were. And another prophecy was, that was fulfilled was that the child would be born in Bethlehem. And that is a fulfillment of uh, Micah chapter, chapter 5, verses, verse 2. But in order for that prophecy, specific prophecy, to be fulfilled, Joseph had to be obedient to this human Roman demand that he appear for a census. 
Uh, and so uh, this was an intense journey that he had to take. Uh, we saw last week that journey from Nazareth down to near the hill country of Judea, about five miles south of Jer uh, Jerusalem there is where Bethlehem is located. That's about an 80-mile journey, uh, which is through hard terrain and had to be especially difficult, especially uh, for Mary, who was pregnant at the time. But Joseph obeyed. He was not rebellious against the government. He was a law-abiding citizen, and he set an example of his, uh, for his house by submitting uh, to the law of the land, submitting to Roman authority. And that had to be especially hard because he probably knew that Mary was going to give birth away from home, away from her family, uh, not in his own house, and uh, especially when we learned that uh, there was no room in the inn, and so he was uh, you know, born someplace outside of his home and outside of what was comfortable for them. Uh, so, but he still exhibited this spiritual leadership, and spiritual leadership uh, that Joseph modeled, we have to model that kind of spiritual leadership as well in our homes. It means obedience to governing authorities, unless the governing authorities are in direct contradiction to what the law of God says, we are required to obey the governing authorities and not be in conflict with them. And Joseph models that first, that he was obedient to the law of Rome. And we see also that he was obedient to the law of Moses. And we can hop uh, into Luke 2, verses 21 to 24 to see this. When eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So Joseph was obedient to the law of, uh, the, of the land and to the law of Moses. So let's see it. The law required that a male be uh, circumcised eight days after his birth. And so verse 21 says that Joseph fulfilled that obligation. And he also obeyed the law from the angel to name the child Jesus. Then another requirement was that they had to obey these purification laws that existed uh, from Moses. A woman uh, who had given birth was ceremonially unclean and she had to engage in certain purification rites to become ceremonially clean again. And so when the child was 40 days old, they have to come to the temple and they have to offer sacrifices. Uh, so for a person of average or, or above average wealth, you'd have to offer a spotless one-year-old perfect lamb as a burnt offering. And then you could offer either a pigeon or a dove as a sin offering. So you had to do the burnt offering and the sin offering. If you were a poor person, you could offer a bird for each instead and not have to bring the lamb. So a, a bird, either a dove or a pigeon for the burnt offering and for the uh, sin offering as well, which is what Joseph and Mary did because they were not rich people. But God didn't care that Joseph and Mary weren't wealthy people. God doesn't need wealthy people in order to use them. God can use anyone, rich or poor, to fulfill his purposes. And he's not looking necessarily for wealthy or perfect people. He's looking for obedient, faithful, humble, and available people. Those are the people that God can use. And also because Joseph was the firstborn son, Exodus 22 required them to dedicate him to the Lord, uh, which was uh, in remembrance of, of how uh, the Lord passed over the firstborn of Israel uh, at the time of the Passover when he was uh, striking down Egypt for its disobedience and not allowing the Israelites to go. And so we see that that's what Joseph did in verse 22. He dedicated this child to the Lord. And so uh, men, you 
and me, we, as spiritual leaders of our homes, uh, we are required to follow this kind of model. Uh, we are required to be leaders of our home, to teach our families, uh, to follow the law of the land, to follow the law of God uh, in our homes. And so uh, we don't have to keep the ceremonial requirements of Moses' law anymore, right? We learned all about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fulfilled uh, the ceremonial requirements of the law by his death and his burial and his resurrection. But we are still required to obey his moral law. And we learned about that in the Sermon on the Mount, too. The Sermon on the Mount tells us all about what the marks of a true disciple of Jesus Christ are and how they should be present in our lives as well. And so are we men, are we modeling these things in our homes? Are we teaching our children uh, these qualities that Joseph had to raise up godly families uh, like like uh, Joseph did. This is the responsibility that God has given to us as men, and we need uh, to lead our families well, and I pray that we are. Uh, Joseph was the leader of his home, and he continued to model obedience to the Lord, not only in uh, following the law of the land, following the law of Moses, but also uh, in following the, the commands that the angel gave him as we look at his obedience uh, when he fled from uh, or uh, to Egypt and then his return to Nazareth. Now, this next passage that I'm going to read happens immediately after the wise men had visited and then left. So we're skipping over those verses, and now we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When they had gone, that's the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, that last phrase there is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, so what happened here is that after the purification rites were completed, uh, Joseph and Mary did not go back to Nazareth. They stayed there uh, in Jerusalem. And then the wise men visited them there uh, from the east, probably about two years after Jesus' birth. And we know that because when Herod uh, realized that he had been tricked by the Magi who went home another way, he ordered all the children or the male children who were two years old and younger to be killed, which would have been unnecessary if Jesus was just a, you know, a three-month-old toddler. That's why scholars think that Jesus was at least two by this time. Uh, but Jesus was spared uh, death at the hands of Herod by another appearance of the angel of the Lord to Joseph in a dream. And the angel told Joseph that uh, Jesus's life was in danger and that he needed to flee to Egypt. And Joseph immediately obeyed that angel. He took Mary and Jesus up during the night, it says, which means that the flight was quick. Uh, and it was at least a 100-mile walk to Egypt. We see that on the map. The Nazareth to Bethlehem route is about 80 miles, so uh, it's at least probably double that, maybe 160 miles there into Egypt. And that's a, a long walk uh, for, for Mary, <clears throat> a very difficult walk as well. So they went there. And Joseph and Mary remained there until Herod's death. And then an angel of the Lord came another time and appeared to Joseph in a dream again and then told him he could go back home. So continuing in Matthew, verses 19 to 23, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are seeking your life are dead. So that's the third visit in a dream. 
So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And now here's a fourth dream. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, we know from historical records, very well-attested historical records, that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So obviously, Jesus had to be born before Herod died. So probably in either 5 or 6 BC was when Jesus was born. Now, after Herod died, his kingdom was divided among his sons. Uh, And one of the sons was this son called Archelaus. And uh, Joseph planned to go to Judea, but apparently he was afraid of Archelaus. And this is the, re- the region that Archelaus ruled. That whole brown region is the region of Judea. That's where uh, Joseph was going to return to. Uh, but that upper purple region called Lower Galilee is where Archelaus's uh, brother, uh, Herod Antipas, was ruling. And so the angel reveals to him, don't go to Judea, go back to uh, Nazareth, your hometown, and that's where I want you to live. And by this, yet another prophecy was fulfilled, according to Matthew, that says he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's really actually no specific Old Testament prophecy that says that Jesus will be called a Nazarene, which is very interesting. Uh, But many scholars believe that he was referring to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, which says, then a shoot will spring from Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now this word for branch is interesting. It's netzer, the Hebrew word netzer. Uh, And uh, this is an olive tree. You see that big thick trunk of the olive tree, and then you see those branches that are coming, rising up out of that olive tree. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way. Uh, Those branches are called netzers, and they're springing up out of the root of the tree. And so many scholars think that the stump is Jesse and the netzers that are coming out of that tree. uh, Jesus is one of those netzers, the branch uh, that is coming from the stump. So that may be what Matthew was referring to, or uh, it may be that we just don't have the prophecy recorded uh, that Matthew was referring to in the Bible. But either way, Matthew views the fact that he was from Nazareth as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Now, what we see here is that Mary was the mother of God, an awesome responsibility, right? But Joseph, he was the leader of the home, and he was given the responsibility for protecting this young family. They needed a man to protect them because they would be in constant danger. And in these two stories of Joseph's flight from uh, Israel and return to Israel, we see again that Joseph, as the spiritual leader of his home, took that responsibility to protect his family very seriously. Joseph was attuned to the voice of God. He was obedient to the voice of God. And Joseph probably became so used to hearing from God uh, because he was so tuned into his voice that uh, he just immediately obeyed and he had come to expect that God would be faithful. Uh, This was the fourth appearance, as I said, when uh, the angel warned him not to go uh, into Judea, but go up instead to Galilee. And so because of Joseph's continuing obedience, and because he had this personal relationship where he's hearing from the Lord regularly, uh, Joseph knew that he could trust God in all circumstances, even things that he would not have understood or didn't make any sense to him. In those things, he still immediately obeyed. So men... 
as spiritual leaders of our homes, we have to model this kind of trusting obedience to God as well uh, in offering uh, protection to our families, uh, protecting our families from uh, the world uh, and from the devil who is out to do damage in our homes. Our role is not to question the Lord. Our role is to be obedient to him, to trust him like Joseph did. God never steered Joseph wrong and he will never steer us wrong either. Now, we could all point to times in our life where God asked us to do something that we didn't understand, right? And uh, sometimes we think that God owes us some kind of an explanation as to why he's telling us to do the things that he's telling us to do. And in fact, it's just the opposite. It didn't make any sense for Abraham to get up and leave uh, the land of Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. It didn't make any sense for Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh, at least from Moses' perspective. It didn't make any sense to Jonah for him to get up and go talk to the Ninevites and try to save them from their sins. Uh, But God asks us to trust him even when we don't understand. And so we need uh, to follow unquestioning trust of God in our homes to be obedient, uh, model perfect obedience to him in our homes and to our families. Now we're going to skip forward about 12 years now, to the only passage that we have uh, that tells us anything about Jesus' life between his birth and his uh, public ministry that began about 30 years later. And what we see here is that Joseph continued to faithfully model obedience to the Lord throughout his entire life. And we see that in his obedience in attending the annual festivals. Uh, Hopping back to Luke now, verses uh, 2, 41 to 42. Every year... Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, Passover was a one-day feast, and then it's followed by a full one-week feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we know that this marks the uh, time of celebration of the Passover when God rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh's hand. So that's the first festival. There was another festival called the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, which happened 50 days uh, after uh, this Feast of Passover. And that celebrates God's provision in the grain harvest. And uh, when when they harvested the grain, they would have this celebration called Pentecost. So Jewish males were expected to be at the temple for that as well. And then a third time when the Jewish males were expected to appear at the temple was during what is called the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And this was a fall festival. It happened five days after the Day of Atonement. And this is when the Jews uh, celebrated uh, the time when they wandered in the wilderness and God's provision for them in the wilderness. And uh, they would live in in huts or tabernacles to commemorate what had happened during their wilderness wanderings. Now, as a faithful Jewish male, Joseph would be expected to go to at least one, maybe all three of these feasts every year in Jerusalem. And so as a faithful male, verse 21 says, he attended this Jewish feast every year. And so we see him modeling obedience to the law. Now, to be sure that we understand what uh, Luke is saying here, uh, the verb, this verb went, is in the imperfect tense. Imperfect tense means repeated, habitual action. So you could translate the verse, every year uh, he repeatedly, habitually went up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. 
And if that wasn't enough, uh, he says, Luke says, according to the custom. So three different ways he tells us that every single year, Joseph, according to the custom, repeatedly, habitually took his family up to Jerusalem for the feast. So Luke does not want us to miss this, that Joseph was always faithful to the law of the Lord, always leading his family in obedience to the law of the Lord. And so this last passage about taking Joseph, uh, Jesus up to the temple when he was 12 years old, this is Joseph's last appearance in scripture, uh, this, this incident here. He probably got in a little bit of trouble with Mary when on the way home, uh, he lost jo or Jesus. They didn't know where he was. And I can imagine uh, uh, the finger pointing that went on, uh, but yet uh, they resolved that, went back to Jerusalem and found their son, brought him back home again. Uh, but that's the last scene. It's his last appearance in all of scripture. And all, uh, the only other thing we know about Joseph really is that he was a carpenter, which we learned from that scene in uh, Capernaum where uh, Jesus is, is looking, uh, doing works and, and, and teaching and, and looking for followers. And, and they say to him, isn't this uh, the carpenter's son? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? And uh, from that, we of course presume that Jesus also was a carpenter because uh, sons took on the trades of their fathers. And that's why we believe that Jesus was a carpenter. But we don't know when Joseph died. We're not told anything about that. He's not mentioned uh, at any time during the time of Jesus's public ministry. Uh, if he was alive, he most certainly would have been at the wedding of Cana. Uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, certainly a husband and wife would go to that wedding together, but he's not there. Uh, at Jesus's crucifixion, uh, he looks down at John and says, behold, your mother, Mary, uh, which he certainly would be a strange thing to say to him if Joseph was still alive. And so because of all this, scholars believe that Joseph died sometime between when Jesus was 12 years old and when his public ministry began at about 30. So like Zacharias, like Elizabeth, Jesus's death, I mean, Joseph's death is not recorded. Uh, and that's because it's not important to the story, right? What's important to the story is not his death. It's the fact that he lived in faithful obedience to the Lord according to his commands of following his, uh, his, his uh, ideas for how Joseph should live his life. And Joseph did that in humility and trust. And then he walked off the pages of scripture, just like we saw with Zacharias and Elizabeth. But what an incredible legacy that he left. So let's think about a few lessons that we can learn from Joseph's life. The first thing I want us to see is that following God requires us to take risks. So I ask us all, what risks are we willing to take for God? Now think about the risk that Joseph took. He, he, he risked a lot in taking Mary on. This was going to be public ridicule. Uh, we, in our day and age, we might not be able to understand fully what their culture was like. In fact, I know that we can't. Uh, but their culture was not like our own. Uh, many of you may have uh, seen the story this week. It was on Twitter and various other social media outlets about a, a woman who was living with four men and she became pregnant uh, by one of them, but she's not sure which one. And so her plan is to raise this child uh, with the four men in the house, with each of the four of them uh, serving as the, as the child's father. Now, that is the direction that our culture is heading in. But that is not what Joseph's culture was like at all. Uh, that would never have happened in that day and age. And so uh, in Joseph's culture, to be married to a woman uh, who wasn't a virgin with a child that was not your own would be a very shameful, humiliating thing. And he would hear the whispers from the doubters and the cynics his entire life. But he was willing uh, to put that aside because he knew that he had heard from God. Now, when we have a decision about whether we are willing to obey, to obey God, sometimes that's going to come at great risk to us. 
Uh, many people thought that we were crazy when we picked up our stakes from New Jersey and followed God's call to come down here to Texas. And I'm sure many of you have your own testimonies about times where you really stepped out and took a risk for God and you watched God do amazing things in your life. Now, when you think about it, we talk about taking risks for God. But if God has called you, then it's really not a risk at all, is it? God has given you this path that he wants you to walk. And if God is with you on that journey, then the risk is not a risk because it's actually the safest place to be when we're in God's will. It's when we're disobedient to God, when we hear the call and we don't obey him, that's when we're subject to discipline. And that's not a place that we want to be at all. So if you know that God is calling you to, to take some risk, to step out in faith for God, uh, I would encourage us all to do that and watch God work amazing things in our lives. Uh, God will reward you for your faith. He did that for Joseph. So following God requires us to take great risks. Second is this, that God uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. You know, there wasn't anything flashy about Joseph, right? He was just a regular guy. Uh, he's a simple carpenter from a small town. He's trying to feed his family, live a righteous life before God. He expected to have a regular marriage to a regular woman, uh, work a regular job, and raise a regular family, right? Uh, but God had other plans for his life. His character made him someone that God could use. His humility, his availability, his obedience in marrying Mary and raising Jesus are the extraordinary acts of an ordinary person. And we saw those same qualities in Zacharias and Elizabeth the past two weeks, and we'll see that same quality again when we study Mary's life next week. And we as Christians should all be marked by this same thing. We're ordinary people, but God can use us for extraordinary purposes. We should be marked by all these qualities because these qualities point to God and people see God in us when we display these qualities. And if we have them, even though we're regular, ordinary people, God can use us to do amazing things. And I want to be used by God. I don't want to be unavailable when God taps me on the shoulder and says, I have a job for you to do. Uh, none of us is too ordinary for God to use. God uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. Third thing is this, be the spiritual leader God has called you to be, especially for men. You know, gone are the days of father knows best, right? Where men was the respected leader in the home and an admired voice in the home. And now are the days of Homer Simpson, another drunk and, and, and uh, you know, dumb, uh, disconnected, uh, disobedient, uh, waffling, middling fathers. Uh, that's the day and age that we live in where the man is not the respected person in the home anymore. Uh, he neither leads his family or claims responsibility for them. But this is not how God intended the family to be. God intends men to lead their families by loving their wives, honoring them and, and their children. And God charged men with the responsibility for the children's spiritual training. And God expects men to uh, model service in their home. God wants us not to be controlled by anything except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God wants us to remain in authority over our families, yet while we are under the authority of Christ. That's the proper order of things. And God tells us men to be men above reproach. Joseph modeled all of these things. He was a bold leader, not a wimpy people pleaser. And so God has given us men great responsibility over our families. And so like Joseph, we need to lead, lead well. And finally, 
Christmas is a time of love. It's our third week of Advent. We've talked about peace and we've talked about hope already. And this week, it's the week of love. You know, Joseph must have really loved Mary and he must have really loved the Lord to have followed this, this life that God had for him. And Joseph loved his other children that would be born uh, from this marriage. And he loved uh, them all to do the job that he was called to do. But as much as Joseph modeled love, Jesus modeled it much more. Jesus returned Joseph's love, but on an infinitely greater scale, more than we could ever understand, uh, by dying on the cross for Joseph's sins, for Mary's sins, for the sins of his brothers and sisters, for the sins of the whole world, for your sins and for my sins. It's just an incredible story of love. It's beyond comprehension to us. And so this Christmas season, as we think about uh, love, uh, having considered peace and hope, uh, the love of Christ is the most staggering, I think, of all. It's clearly shown by him leaving his kingdom in heaven, uh, taking on uh, the form of a helpless babe, living a sinless life, dying on a cross for our sins. It's the reason for the season. The whole point of the incarnation uh, is the cross. The reason that he came to live was that he came to die. He came to die for our sins, and that's perfect love modeled for us. So at this time of year, it's really a great time for us to think about how we can model love to the world. And it comes in little things. We can, uh, in this hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, we can give up the parking spot uh, at the store to somebody else who looks like they're in a great rush. Uh, We can buy their coffee behind us in the line at Starbucks, something like that. There are a million ways that we can show the love of Christ to the world in very small ways that are meaningful at this time of year. So I would just implore us to show the sacrificial love of Christ to others this Christmas season. Uh, Who knows who you may lead to the Lord by one simple act of kindness. Uh, They will know that we are Christians by our love. Amen? Lord God. We thank you for this amazing story of Joseph's life, how you use such a humble uh, yet willing and obedient servant to be the earthly father of Jesus Christ. And uh, what a father he was, Lord. May we follow his example. Lord, may we uh, love Jesus like he loved Jesus. And Lord, may we uh, present Jesus to a world who desperately needs to see Jesus, Lord, to have Jesus in their hearts. Lord, help us to accomplish these things, especially during this season. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.